You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, everyone. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week. And uh, we're going to get into our standard political machine conversation as we do. Uh, For those of you that are new to the show, let me extend a special welcome to you and maybe give you a little bit of heads up as to what this show is about. This is a political podcast, uh, although it does not uh, feature conversations about individuals in politics unless they are directly related to the nature of the story. Uh, I focus on what's going on with the political system, how the games that are being played by our politicians affect uh, you and me and the average everyday American voter. And uh, we dig into what's going on, why they are doing it and uh, stuff like that. Uh, Each week, though, we start off with a recap of where we are with the COVID virus. Uh, And now under the new Delta variant, uh, we are seeing some interesting and scary things happening. Uh, We'll get into that in a second. But first, let's do the numbers. Uh, As of this week, there are 34.95 million cases of COVID-19 that have been recorded since the start of the pandemic. Uh, 613,000 people have died from the disease and 344.8 million people have received uh, vaccination against the disease. Uh, 49% of those are fully vaccinated, actually it's 49.6 to be precise, and uh, 57.7% have received at least one dose of the uh, COVID vaccine. And it should be noted that in the past week, according to reports from the CDC, uh, more than one million people got vaccinated for the first time uh, in the past week and that's an upswing from prior weeks Uh, and you know we're seeing also uh, particularly in areas of the country where uh, vaccine rates are low uh, we are seeing surges in hospitalizations due to covid complications that have risen in some areas as much as 50 percent or more and uh, are continuing to increase week over week here in this country. The key point there, as I just mentioned, is the unvaccinated population. According to CDC information, uh, better than 95 plus percent of the hospitalizations uh, currently happening in this country are people who have not been vaccinated. And uh, that, of course, means that you know, we've got an upswing in the number of cases, uh, upswing in hospitalizations, and you know the rate of people dying from the disease is uh, ticking up slightly. Uh, but you know that's something we will keep an eye on. Uh, it, it's important to understand that the the lack of vaccination in some areas is creating a fertile ground for this Delta variant that's been been traveling across the country. One of the things uh, to keep in mind for those of you who have not gotten your vaccination uh, and maybe are thinking about it is to realize that this Delta variant is tremendously more infectious than the 
uh, alpha variant we've been dealing with since early last year. Uh, what's being reported is that one person getting uh, the Delta variant can infect as many as nine people uh, as well. And this variant is much more transmissible through the air uh, through than the, the original uh, COVID back COVID uh, than the original COVID virus. Um, it is much more easily aerosol. Uh, which means uh, it, it, it sprays into the air as you're speaking and, and laughing or singing or, or whatever much more readily than, than other variants. One of the things I heard to kind of illustrate that point is if you've ever been in the area or been around someone who smokes uh, and you can smell the cigarette smoke in the air, then you are within range of being infected by the Delta variant. Uh, it travels through the air much more readily, as I just said, than the prior COVID versions that we've seen. So, you know, the, the idea of six feet apart for social distancing, uh, you can be as far as, you know, 10 or 20 feet away. And if you can smell, you know, someone's cigarette smoke that, you know, they're smoking and exhaling, then there's a real possibility that the Delta variant may be able to reach you. So that just means that the, the protocols that we've been following now, and I've been talking about on this show for you know, well over a year, uh, is you know, to wear your mask uh, when you're you know, in public spaces uh, with a lot of other people. Uh, you know, also, you know, wear your mask uh, in, in, indoors, um, you know, again, where you're in proximity to a lot of people who may be infected. Um, one of the things that, you know, to keep in mind is, you know, as I said, this is much more contagious. Uh, we have seen a dramatic increase in the cases just over the last, uh, you know, month to six weeks with the Delta variant. It has, you know, rolled over this, this country like a storm. And you know, we are also starting to see, in response to it, we're seeing you know, communities and, and counties and states and so forth moving back toward some of the uh, masking requirements that we literally uh, just came off of you know, two months ago. And you know, the, the idea of you know, wearing masks indoors and um, you know, in confined spaces with poor ventilation uh, is starting to come back into the, the daily considerations we have to take. Um, there was an interview just recently with Dr. Fauci uh, of the Centers for D Disease Control, and while he is not saying that it, it looks like at this point that, you know, we may go back into lockdown, uh, what he is saying is that you know, uh, a prudent thought is that we should likely look at you know returning to masking requirements in certain circumstances. The other thing, and we talked about this on last week's show, with the advent of schooling uh, starting back up in some communities as early as you know late this week into next week, um, the idea that 
you know, school-age children, particularly those that are under the age of 12, uh, are likely going to need to wear their masks while they're in school uh, simply because, number one, you know, the variant is so, uh, so spreadable, and number two, uh, children under 12 are not yet able to be vaccinated with the COVID vaccine. So there, there's controversy and a lot of discussion and, you know, more than, more than enough politicization of this, this fact going on right now. Uh, but if you're a parent and you're, you know, you're looking to have your children start back to school, just be aware that, you know, they're going to need to wear their masks. It's just going to be part of the routine that they need to follow in terms of being back in school. Um, and, you know, that, that's, in my opinion, it's not too big uh, a hurdle to overcome. Uh, we know what masking does. We know how well it prevents spread of the disease. We know that, you know, the, the idea is uh, that our, our children need to be back in school um, to, to get back into, you know, the, the socialized learning environment and the improvements that learning with others uh, in person, in classroom, uh, the benefits of that, in, again, in my opinion, outweigh the, the slight inconvenience of having to wear a mask. This has already become part of the public discussion going on uh, with regard to the, the COVID uh, pandemic and uh, fitting into some of the other points that are being talked about. Uh, particularly from the standpoint of our political leaders who are now finger pointing uh, between the vaccinated uh, you know, majority in this country and the unvaccinated uh, group in this country uh, and, and setting them at one another. Uh, once again, politicians playing political games uh, with our lives in the balance. It's, you know, it, it's, to me, it just makes no sense that this is discussion that is being had. Um, with regard to attending school, vaccinations have been part of, you know, the, the school, the start of school process uh, for at, at least as long as I can remember. Um, I, I can remember in, you know, second grade and third grade where uh, early in the school year we would line up and they would give us a sugar cube with a uh, polio vaccine dot on it. And we got our polio vaccinations that way. I can remember as a parent uh, having to take each of my children to their doctor prior to the start of school to make sure that they had their measles vaccination and their mumps and, you know, and, and all of that. And they had to show up and bring their vaccination card in order for them to attend school. So this this idea of being vaccinated to attend school, this is not something new here in America. We've been doing this now for you know the better part of 50 years, uh, and yet uh, it has been turned into a political weapon by uh, both political parties to beat up one another uh, over the response to COVID-19 when it, it isn't a political issue. It's a health issue. It's about getting everyone in our country back to being healthy. It's about pushing this virus down uh, to you know as as low a level as we possibly can. 
And, you know, it's about making it no more of a nuisance than getting an annual flu shot. Um, you know, and, you know, the, the discussions have gone around and around on this. You know, with regard to the flu shot, let, let's, 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 take a, let's take a dive into that for a second. Um, each year, you know, the medical community comes out and says that it's time to get your flu shot. Uh, and the reason that we have to get a flu shot every year is that the flu, like COVID, is not a static disease. It changes, it mutates, new strains come out just about every year, and the vaccines have to be modified in order to, to deal with these new flu strains. This is nothing new. This is something we have had to do, you know, as I said, year over year, uh, as far back as I can remember. Um, so the, the idea that people are, you know, uh, uh, uncomfortable with or disagreeing with uh, getting the, the vaccine for the Delta variant and perhaps the notion that we might, and I emphasize might, down the road be getting, you know, booster doses uh, to combat not only the, the Delta variant, but whatever variants come after that. As I said, this is not a new concept. This is something that has been part of our, our fabric of, you know, annual health in this country for many, many, many years. Uh, so I, I really, you know, fault our political leaders here for taking something that should be uh, uh, being worn, I'm, I'm sorry, being woven into the fabric of our, our everyday lives, much like the flu vaccine, and turning it into a, a weapon, turning it into a, a stick to beat up the other political side with. Um, you know, this, this is, is just ridiculous. And, you know, we, we need to be talking with our elected officials to tell them to, you know, stop the rhetoric stop the, the, the weaponization of COVID-19 for political reasons, and let's address it for what it is, for a serious healthcare crisis in this country. That is where we need to be pushing the effort, and that is where they need to be pushing the effort. And anything else we should be telling them is unacceptable. So let's put this on our call to action list that we need to communicate with our political leaders, particularly uh, at the state and local level, since they are the ones that have the most direct control over the education systems in our local communities, that the, the idea and, and all these games and political warfare going on revolving around COVID needs to stop. And we need to be focused with one voice and one body saying, you know, what, whatever we need to do in order to uh, eliminate this disease from our everyday lives, we need to do it. And it's not a political thing. It is a health thing. So for, uh, for those of you new to the show, uh, we have what are called calls to action, where I, I give you suggestions and tips on things that you can do to help influence the conversation being held in your local uh, state and federal uh, elected officials uh, to, to work toward things that are necessary for the people, regardless of whether you live in a Democrat state, a Republican state, a Democrat city, a Republican city, so on and so forth. So just so you're aware, when I say call to action, what I mean is this is something we can do as the voters, as the electorate, 
to get our political uh, leaders who we elect and send to office to do work for us uh, to get off the dime and do what they need to do. All right. So having said all that, let's um, let's transition um, into what's going on in the political world. I know over the last two shows, we've been very heavily talking about covid uh, because it's been the 800 pound gorilla in the room. But there are other things going on. Um, not the least of which we've got the Olympics happening in Tokyo, Japan, uh, to massive stadiums of no people uh, because Japan is going through a COVID surge in their country and they essentially shut out uh, live spectators from all the Olympic venues, um, which kind of takes the, the energy off of the Olympic Games, but doesn't make it any more, any less rather, um, spectacular and breathtaking to see. So, you know, I, I've been in and out watching some of it. I haven't, haven't watched it with the depth that I normally do. Um, but I have noticed that, you know, without having spectators in the, in the stands, um, it, it is a, a little bit less uh, energetic. But nonetheless, still, these are the top athletes in the world and they are performing on the world stage. And we wish them all well. All right, let's um, let's get some political stuff going in here. Uh, so let's start off, and we're going to start off in Arizona. As you may uh, be aware, unless you've been you know off the planet in the Delta Quadrant, um, Arizona set up a recount and analysis of the 2020 election, uh, setting up to, as, as they had said, uh, seek out and document and detail uh, voter fraud and election fraud in their uh, 2020 uh, presidential race. Well, they've been working at it for over 100 days now, and they, according to reports, uh, they have not found anything of a substantial nature uh, that that would indicate some level of uh, corruption in the voting system or, you know, widespread and significant voter fraud. Uh, in addition to that, the company that was hired to do the audit, uh, a company called Cyber Ninjas, uh, is run by a gentleman who uh, is a Trump supporter, uh, has been a, a donor to the Republican and Trump campaigns, and yet his company was put in to do a, quote, objective, close quote, uh, analysis of the Arizona uh, election. And they've been looking at some of the things that could be wrong with the votes, uh, including, you know, bleed through of the ink used from one side of the ballot to the other, at one point, they were having the ballot scientifically evaluated, looking for bamboo fibers uh, because the belief was that a bunch of ballots were shipped in from Asia and, you know, to to contaminate the vote. Uh, it, it's been a a a cluster to, to use a word for it uh, pretty much from the word go. Um, it's been really, really crazy. And it showed up in an article from the Associated Press uh, over the weekend uh, that was talking about 
the, uh, the auditors, uh, when they had finished the counting, which they did uh, just this past week, um, the, the, the audit team, the leader of that team, who was the only person that had any substantial election experience, uh, he ended up getting locked out of the building. Uh, he went on to a local radio station to say that he was quitting. Then uh, a couple of hours later, he changed his mind and said he wasn't. Um, you know, it, it, their Twitter accounts were suspended for breaking Twitter's rules on spreading unfounded rumors. Um, you know, that, that was all part and parcel of this turmoil uh, that is, all it has really done is cast more doubt on the conclusions of what backers called and describe as a forensic audit, but what experts and criti crit critics say, excuse me, is a deeply flawed partisan process. Uh, it's, it's being just uh, one disaster after another with this audit. Um, it has created numerous problems uh, for the Arizona voting system. Uh, they, they got into voting machines uh, it has, has cost a ton of money, um, and, you know, just the controversy, uh, the gentleman leading, uh, the, the audit, uh, which was supposed to, uh, be done for $150,000, which was paid by the Arizona Senate, uh, he's now, uh, reported as getting $5.7 million dollars. Uh, contributed by political groups run by prominent Trump supporters, including Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell, Patrick Byrne, and correspondents from One America News Network. So, you know, once again, we're looking at something where it is not a, an objective assessment. Uh, it is very much a partisan uh, assessment. And, you know, it, it really is, you know, just one, one mistake after another, one, you know, strange occurrence after another, um, you know, and now the, the finger pointing has started, uh, supporters of the effort, uh, blame stonewalling by Maricopa County, the county's Republican leaders refused to cooperate, saying competent auditors have everything they would need to fully review the vote count. Uh, yet we're still seeing uh, confused and mixed messages coming out of Arizona. Uh, you know, and if that wasn't uh, enough, uh, now we're seeing reports that similar operations are being looked at in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, to audit their systems as well. Uh, these, these efforts uh, are at least initially being met with uh, resistance by the, the local election committees in those states. But it is, you know, clear that, that you know, something will probably land in each of those states. Um, you know, it, it's just crazy. In one segment of this article, they talk about a former Republican state lawmaker who lost his reelection bid and who could have been, quote, a Trump elector to the Electoral College had Trump won, was among the workers counting ballots. Uh, 
you know, the auditors chase conspiracy theories for a time shining ultraviolet lights to look for watermarks on ballots and taking high resolution photographs to look for evidence uh, of, of, you know, corrupt paper, including the aforementioned bamboo fibers. You know, this is this is just a kangaroo court of audits. And, you know, the the people in these states need to stand up and tell their elected officials they don't want it. They don't want to spend the money for it. Uh, you know, what's done is done and let's move forward. Uh, and, you know, that that's something that I think this country needs to speak loudly with one voice and say, you know, it's over, you know, to, to quote to quote the words of Ferris Bueller, it's over. Go home, you know, and just just stop the madness. We all want to get off of the, the wacky merry-go-round. Um, at, at the end of the day, though, as these go on and continue, uh, this is just continuing to create some existential threats to our democratic system. And, you know, many people are now saying they need to be stopped in their tracks. And I would agree with that wholeheartedly. So our second call to action is let's make sure we reach out to our state uh, legislators and let them know that, you know, we're not going to pay for some, you know, crazy you know, voter fraud audit when we've already adjudicated the 2020 election. There were more than 60 lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign. All were were denied except for one piece of one lawsuit in the state of Pennsylvania, which was on a procedural matter and not anything to do with fraudulent votes. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it's done. And, you know, they, they need to just let it go. So my take on that uh, i'd love to hear what you think if you've got an opinion if you think these audits need to continue uh or you know you you believe we've had enough send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com i'd love to get your thoughts on this whole vote audit process all right let's take our first break here and we'll carry on after the break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve, and we'll be right back. Things are getting intense, using up my sixth sense. Thought you had us figured, I can't use me at your expense. They be on that pretense, we be on some defense. Lord, all the years, this we in 
is no cure. All the cops screaming, f- 10 for what for? Government always trying to send, so we at war. Yeah, we black, but we really called Moors, born poor. All we care about is Jordan Concords, looking stars. Why you taking things that's not yours? All boy, that ain't no way yet on the George Floyd, stay on point. Half America is really unemployed, we annoyed. Killing people, it's a state of paranoia, can't avoid it. All these business burned down and destroyed, no insurance. Think my people kind of missing what's important, yeah. Standing for your rights. Yeah, we putting up a fight. They don't want us out at night, so they gave us curfew. It's like jumping out the plane with no f- parachute. Don't shoot, hands up, but they still gon' do it. Here we know and probably like, man, what y'all doing? Need to come together, all of us, and start a revolution. Yeah, discover more solutions, overthrow the Constitution. Stop the looting, stop the shooting. We've been living in confusion. I'm getting intense, losing up my sixth sense. Thought you had us figured I can't use me at your expense. On that pretense, we be on some defense. If you in a past tense, you could keep your two cents. I don't wanna be another target on a headless. All my people running around the city like some misfits. So I'm steady praying for my brothers like a wish list. Can I trust a soul? They gon' turn on you the quickest. Welcome back to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. And uh, this is Steve, and let's get right back into our political machine talks for this week, all right? So, moving over to the Democratic side, or the Democrat side of the aisle. Um, An article, or a few articles, have come out over the last half of this past week, uh, talking about uh, the, the, the Biden administration and their, their failure or decision not to uh, renew or extend the eviction protections that were put in place as part of the COVID response uh, last year. And uh, the administration is getting a lot of heat from both outside the Democrat Party and inside the Democrat Party as well. Uh, the effect of this is uh, somewhere between 7 and 11 million adult tenants in this country um, are you know, reporting that, one, they were behind on their rent, and two, that they were facing eviction. And uh, an article I found in Politico seemed to, to capture it best. And uh, this was written by Katie O'Donnell and was posted on July 31st. Uh, the, uh, and she, she talks about what, what's been going on with this. Uh, the article starts out as, as the clock runs out on nationwide eviction ban for what's expected to be the final time. Millions of tenants are staring at the prospect of losing their homes as they wait for emergency rental aid that the government has failed to deliver. Uh, The federal eviction moratorium in place in September is set to expire or was set to expire on Saturday after the Biden administration refused to extend it and the Democrats in Congress couldn't muster the votes to intervene. Now, lawmakers and activists fear an unprecedented surge in evictions in the coming months 
just as the highly transmissible Delta variant causes a spike in coronavirus cases. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's really a bad situation all the way around. Uh, it has, has received a lot of criticism, including this comment from uh, Kansas City Tenants Director Tara Roghoover, a uh, housing organizer in Kansas City, Missouri, and I apologize if I mispronounced her name. Uh, she's saying, and, and is quoted as saying, quote, we've been circling the drain. Uh, on Saturday, poor and working class tenants go down the drain in some places. Uh, the last minute gridlock, according to the article, between President Biden and Democrats in Congress that resulted in the demise of the eviction ban this week threatens to impose new economic burdens on state and local governments. The officials have to respond to mass evictions triggered by landlords, including many struggling financially themselves because of lost revenue, who are poised to kick out tenants who fell behind on their bills during the pandemic. Uh, the renter safety net is not, uh, I'm sorry, the renter safety net is severely weakened with fewer than a dozen state eviction bans in place and state and local governments having dispersed only a fraction of the $46.5 billion in rental assistance that Congress authorized over the past year. So stepping out of the article for a second, there's a lot to unpack in that paragraph. Um, number one, uh, there's money that has been provided to the states by Congress, that $46.5 billion in rental assistance, that has not been dispersed. And according to some news stories that have come across my desk over the last few days, there have been more than a few states who are looking to tap into those funds to cover shortfalls in other areas, uh, making the situation for those who are looking for assistance uh, from the state, since uh, little or none uh, can be expected from the federal government, uh, puts that in jeopardy. The, the article goes on to say, uh, President Joe Biden, in a statement Friday, called on state and local officials, quote, to take all possible steps to immediately disburse those funds, uh, given the ending of the moratorium. Uh, again, further quote, there can be no excuse for any state or locality not accelerating funds to landlords and tenants that have been hurt during the pandemic, he said. Every state and local government must get these funds out to ensure re we prevent every eviction we can. So, you know, it's, it's, it's clear that this is a monumental problem uh, in the making uh, and about to be, uh, you know, dropped on tenants and homeowners across the country. Um, ha you know, housing advocates are, are warning of awful images and hardships for many Americans who have suffered the most from COVID-19. Uh, one quote says, my biggest concern is the dynamic of potentially tens of thousands of sheriff's deputies and other law enforcement officials executing evictions around the country at the same time in the hottest month of the year. And this is a quote from David Dworkin, president and CEO of the National Housing Conference and Affordable Housing Advocacy Group. Uh, you know, that it's you know, a, a huge, huge problem. 
Some say the population of at-risk renters is much larger than the 7.4 million tenants uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, the left-leaning Center for Budget and Policy Priorities estimates that 11.4 million tenants, 16% of adults living in rental housing, are not caught up on rent. Uh, you know, this is, this is going to be an ugly, ugly thing if we see millions and millions of, you know, apartment dwellers uh, being kicked out onto the street uh, because the federal and state governments fail to provide the aid that was committed to be provided uh, through the legislative process, uh, again, since late last year. You know, um, this, this really is a, a problem that doesn't have to be there. Uh, there are funds available. Most states have, you know, funds allocated and set aside for, you know, rent uh, relief for people affected by COVID. Uh, and, you know, it is, it is a matter of them putting the mechanism to disperse those funds into gear, getting the funds out, letting the people know that the funds are available and what the application process is to get them. Now, the fear here is that uh, even if the state legislatures and local um, housing boards and so forth uh, do the right thing and activate those programs and begin the process of getting the money out, some people may already be in the pipeline toward eviction uh, for which this, these funds may not get there in time to reverse that process, uh, which means that now not only are they you know, being put out of the apartment they're living in, but they're going to have to go through the process of finding another apartment and to add insult to that injury, uh, most landlords will not rent to someone who has an eviction on their record. And nothing that I have seen in the legislation talks about how that there is you know, some sort of no-fault clause or some protection from this eviction being recorded to their rental history. And you know, that is going to be another problem that will need to be resolved quickly. The article goes on to highlight uh, just some of the magnitude of what this problem is as we look around the country. And it uh, talks about how the situation that will start unfolding Saturday will vary from state to state. In six states and 31 cities tracked by Princeton University's eviction lab, landlords have filed more than 451,000 evictions since March 15, 2020. Typically in a year, landlords file about 3.7 million eviction cases, so filings are expected to swell in August. Uh, in places such as Texas, uh, according to the article, which has allowed eviction proceedings to continue under the federal ban right up to the point of ejecting tenants from their homes, courts are likely to see a spike in eviction filings on uh, as of Monday, as of today. 31% of the 4.7 million adult tenants in Texas said they had no or slight confidence in their ability to make next month's rent, according to the census survey. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is looking to become a, a problem of, you know, just tremendous proportion all over the country. Um, you know, and while 
it, it, it's easy to understand the anguish that tenants are going through. You know, there's also the side of this uh, for landlords and building owners who have not been able to collect rent and therefore may be in arrears on their mortgages uh, and have their buildings uh, teetering on the verge of going into foreclosure. So, I mean, the, the problem just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, it is, it is just a shame that we are at this point due primarily to an, an inactivity or a, a refusal to do the right thing by the democratic leadership in, the, in this country, uh, federally and on the state level as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this and, and look at how this problem un, unfolds over the coming weeks. But as the article said, uh, it's likely that there's going to be a lot of news coverage about tenants being evicted from their homes uh, because the uh, moratorium has expired and they have you know, nowhere else to go uh, but other than on the streets. So we will keep you posted. And once again, uh, the great state of Florida pops up on the fired up radar. Uh, as Governor DeSantis seeks to block school mask mandates in Florida. This is a story out of Politico uh, that was posted on the 30th. And uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida vowed to reject mask mandates for school-age students on Friday and issued an order allowing parents or guardians to choose whether their child wears a mask in school. The Republican governor, who threatened to call a special session on masks in schools, signed the emergency action on Friday, which is in response to the Broward County School District making masks mandatory for students and teachers in the face of the coronavirus Delta variant spreading throughout the state. Miami-Dade County Public Schools, the fourth largest school district in the country, will make a decision on mask mandates in the coming days. Uh, and, and quoted... Uh, as of today, very few school districts are requiring it. Nevertheless, we have a lot of push from the CDC and others to make every single person, kids and staff, have to wear masks all day, DeSantis said. That would be a huge mistake. The governor, uh, and that's a quote from Governor DeSantis, the governor said the order would direct the Department of Education and Department of Health to craft emergency rules giving parents the right to choose whether their kid wears a mask, which has been an issue amplified by DeSantis in recent weeks. Many schools in Florida are set to resume in-person learning in the coming weeks. The governor's move comes as the Centers for D Disease Control and Prevention this week issued new guidance on masks in school, saying that all K-12 through students should wear face covering inside schools regardless of vaccine status. It furthers the governor's hands-off approach. Uh, it also furthers the governor's hands-off approach to the pandemic and follows his pledges to reject any school closures, lockdowns, or COVID mandates. Now, contrast that, stepping out of the article for a second, Florida is currently seeing a surge of coronavirus infections, reporting 17,589 new COVID-19 cases on Wednesday, the, larger, the, the state's largest mark since January. Florida is now one of the worst his, hit states in the nation and makes up one in five new infections nationally.
So to, if you look at that on the face of it, your state is responsible for some 20% plus of the COVID-19 cases in the country, yet you are going to eliminate one of the measures that has proven to be very effective in preventing the spread of disease uh, at, at worst. At best, you're giving and, and, and giving the choice to parents who may or may not be you know, in the anti-mask club uh, to, to choose whether or not their children uh, get protected from COVID-19 while they're in school. Uh, wasn't this part of how we got into this mess a year ago? Uh, it, 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 frankly, it boggles my mind, uh, particularly when it comes to Governor DeSantis, how, how so many people can stare facts right in the face, see the numbers, 613,000 people have died from COVID-19, yet still consider this virus to be a made-up construct of you know, the liberal left uh, and, and nothing to be taken seriously. You know, everybody in this country probably knows at least one person who has, you know, at best been infected and survived or at worst been infected and died from this disease. Yet we still have our political leaders uh, keeping their heads firmly buried in the sand uh, and not wanting to do what is right uh, by, you know, encouraging at a minimum, enforcing at a maximum that these masks, which are proven to be protective, as well as encouraging vaccinations, uh, do not happen in their states. Um, so, you know, back to the, the article, you know, Governor DeSantis, and this is according to uh, State House Speaker Chris Browles, uh, uh, who is a Republican, Governor, Governor DeSantis recognizes that parents are in the best position to make choices for their children, close quote. His actions today demonstrate his faith and trust in our fellow Floridians, and he and they have my full support. So, you know, the... the statement and the actions of the governor uh, apparently fly in the face of what uh, medicine and science have been telling us for more than a year. Um, the local Florida Education Association, uh, however, uh, has criticized DeSantis' mask move as overreach against local school boards. In their quote, Governor DeSantis continues to think that Tallahassee knows best what all Floridians need, uh, FEA President Andrew Sparr said in a statement. We reject that kind of thinking, Sparr said. Instead, we ask Governor DeSantis to allow all Florida citizens to have a voice by empowering the elected leaders in of the cities, counties, and school districts to make health and safety decisions locally based on their unique needs and circumstances. So, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, this is a controversial decision. Um, Governor DeSantis has uh, put his mark in the sand as to where he stands and, you know, is basically saying, you know, the parents are the best ones to choose what is best for their students. 
uh, for their children, which in part is true, but where you have, and, and sorry, I just got to be real here, where you have parents who are believing the conspiracy theories, are believing the, the anti-mask, anti-vax uh, hype that's out there, are not seeing what the numbers and what the science has been telling us for a year that, you know, mask wearing and distancing and all the other things and now including vaccines in that are what have driven the, the alpha variant of COVID-19 down to severely low levels. And the opposite of that, not social distancing, not wearing masks, not getting vaccinated is why 95% of those hospitalized with COVID uh, are unvaccinated. So, you know, I, I just I just think the governor's on the wrong side of the issue here. And I think, you know, uh, those of you that are in Florida need to communicate your feelings to your elected officials uh, as quickly as possible. And because, of course, we can't have a conversation without about Florida without having a conversation about its neighbor to the north, Georgia. Uh, this article uh, coming out of Associated Press talks about how the Georgia GOP is starting its push for takeovers of a local election boards. Uh, in in the, the lead line, Republican lawmakers in Georgia have started a process that could lead to a takeover of elections in the state's most populous county. Many of the GOP continue, I'm sorry, many in the GOP continue to claim wrongdoing in the reliably uh, Democratic Fulton County had stolen the 2020 election from Donald Trump, even though an independent monitor found no evidence of fraud or impropriety. Lawmakers are using a tool created by the state's sweeping new election law to exact influence over uh, local elections. Democrats and voting rights advocates decry the takeover provisions as an invitation for political interference. The county, with about 11% of the state's electorate, includes most of the city of Atlanta. But Fulton County has been plagued with problems for years, and Republicans say it's time for answers. State House Speaker Pro Tem Jan Jones and four other GOP state representatives, whose districts include part of Fulton, submitted a letter Friday to the state's election board demanding a performance review of the county's Board of Registration and Elections. Uh, in a quote, uh, I wrote the letter as a representative of constituents who have expressed concerns over the sloppy manner in which elections were conducted in Fulton County in 2020 and the years leading up to then, Jones, who represents a suburban North Fulton district, said Friday. Uh, in addition, three Republican senators, uh, state senators representing parts of Fulton, as well as 24 other GOP senators, sent a similarly, a slightly different letter this week. Uh, in, in their quote, uh, the people deserve better and I want to see a comprehensive review and plan for improvement. State Senator John Alberts, who uh, also from North Fulton, wrote in an email on Friday. So... You know, under this law that Georgia Republicans pushed through uh, this year, the letters could lead to the state election board removing Fulton's five-member election board. 
but there remains uncertainty about how the process would work. Uh, the critics are alleging that this allows the board to just willy-nilly take over boards and change the results of elections. But there's a lot of due process that's built into this, the state's election board member, uh, Matt Massburn, uh, said, and he is a Republican. Um, GOP Governor Brian Kemp uh, and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger expressed support even though the new law took away Raffensperger's vote on the state election board. I appreciate the General Assembly finally supporting my movement that something needs to be done in Fulton County, said Raffensperger. He has vigorously defended Georgia's 2020 election results, but rarely miss, misses an opportunity to criticize Fulton. So this is where I have to call a hypocrisy foul. Uh, both Raffensperger and Kemp defended the election when then-President Trump uh, called them both. Actually, Trump called and um, Mitch McConnell called and you know uh, asked them, demanded of them to overturn the Georgia election and to give the 16 electoral votes to Donald Trump. And they refused, saying that their election process was fair and, you know, you know, unbiased. Now, all of a sudden, I guess they're saying, yes, the election was fair and unbiased, except for Fulton County. Uh, and, you know, the fact that both Raffensperger and Kemp have taken huge criticism from former President Trump uh, and that both of them face 2022 GOP primary challengers from uh, candidates echoing those criticisms with Trump endorsing Raffensperger challenger uh, and U.S. Rep. Jody Heiss. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it stinks to high heaven, folks. I'm sorry. Um, you know, the, the, you, you can't have it both ways. You know, either your election was fully fair and transparent uh, and you need to, to set it down, close the book and move on. Or there are problems in, you know, multiple counties, not just the one that happens to be uh, the most predominantly populated with voters of color and minorities, uh, at which, you know, historically follow a Democratic voting trend. Uh, and really, really looks more like a punishment than a correction of some perceived problems. Um, you know, so uh, again, our calls to action, we need to hold our state elected officials to account. If there is verifiable uh, and real evidence of some problem with your board of elections, fine then address those boards of elections. But don't just single out, you know, one county, which happens to be highly minority and overwhelmingly Democrat, to take out your, your uh, wrath on behalf of the former president because he lost the state. Um, you know, th there's, there's a limit to how much uh, we should tolerate as voters, as the electorate, for the games that our political leaders play. And whether they're Republican or Democrat, you know, as we've seen in this episode, uh, both sides are playing some pretty dangerous games and they're playing them with the, the lives and well-being 
of the voters and the the most vulnerable people uh, living in this country. And we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to overcome whatever voter suppression tactics are out there to overcome whatever voter disenfranchisement is is trying to be levied against us. We need to make sure that we are in the game, that we are getting what we need to make sure that we can vote when elections come up, no matter what they do. If we have to drive 10 miles or, or 50 miles to go vote, then we need to make that happen. If uh, we have to bring three different kinds of ID, then we need to make that happen. We need to fight everywhere we can and overwhelmingly uh, show them that they will not stop democracy. You know, they, they can try and, and, and you know, thin out the herd. They can try and cut down the, the opposition voting. But we need to make sure that we show them that that's not going to work. So there's your call to action, folks. Let's get on. Let's get on the game. Let's get after our politicians. All right. And we'll end our show this week on that note. I appreciate it as always. Please, please, please stay safe out there. Uh, You know, we may have to go back to wearing our masks in more places. Uh, Let's do that. If you have the opportunity to get vaccinated, please, folks, go get vaccinated. Uh, It is the best way to make sure that you, your family, your community, and your country stay safe from the Delta variant and whatever else is coming down the pike. As always, if you have any comments or questions, send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to take me to task over the Florida thing, feel free, and uh, we will leave it there. Hey, everybody, stay safe, and I look forward to talking to you again in seven days. Wherever you stand, I'm calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.